Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you, and it's ready-made to start as soon as tonight. This season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, though as I've noted more than once on this program, you can take the scenarios we've created here and drop them into pretty much any post-apocalyptic game you'd like, if Fallout happens to not be your cup of tea. If you are drinking the Fallout tea with me, but don't have a copy of the rules, check out your local game or bookstore. Or if you don't have one handy, check out the Modiphius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. Okay, so I've been mentioning this in the closing of the show for the past couple of weeks, but it occurs to me that I might be burying it a bit, as many people tend to stop their podcasts once the credits start. So let me drop this in up front this week. Coming up Friday, September 29th through Sunday, October 1st is Archon 46 from the Gateway Center in Collinsville, Illinois. All of us from Bad GM Productions are going to be there over the course of the weekend, though I think I'm the only one who's going to be there all three days. Anyway, we've been fortunate enough to be taken in by the folks who run the game room and we'll be setting up there doing live check-ins throughout the convention. We're also going to do a live edition of Role Playing History on that Saturday And it might just be audience participation. So you're going to want to check that out. So if you're even remotely interested, head over to the Archon 46 website at archonstl.org and check out all the details there. All right, we've taken care of the business business. Now let's clean up some of the build business. Let's start with how I presented Mackenzie Cook last week. I know when we first brought her in, we gave her a fairly well-detailed story as to why she was there and all of that. So was last week a continuity issue or had I been planning it that way all along? The answer to that is it was neither. I'd intended Cook to be exactly what we laid her out to be, but when the Brotherhood of Steel was being introduced, I thought it might make for some interesting storytelling to have a former BOS paladin be involved in things somehow, and Cook seemed to make the most sense. I realize that changing the story a bit is going to have your group staring at you like you're a liar or stopping the game for a moment to point out the inconsistency. If you haven't yet run Mackenzie's introduction, then maybe adjust things a bit, but don't put the Brotherhood of Steel stuff in there. We still want that to be a surprise to our players. I also got to thinking about her character as I was editing last week's show for broadcast. I mean, why would Zane be so up in arms about Cook leaving the Brotherhood? I mean, the idea of a paladin leaving would be a fairly substantial thing. But what if it's because Cook's more than just another paladin? What if she'd been offered promotion after promotion, but continually turned them down because she preferred to be in the field? What if she was the type of soldier that others saw as the prototype for the job? What if, and this might just be a stretch for those who've played the various titles in the Fallout video game series, her name was continually being bandied about as being next in line to be Elder. To me, that would be the reason someone like Zane would be so up in arms about the loss. Zane probably didn't know Cook personally, but had heard stories about her missions and her successes. She might have heard from those that she respected that Cook was the kind of leader that others would follow without question. And she might have heard whispers that Cook was in line for a promotion, though most would assume it was to a command rank that was an elder. 
A person like that has an aura about them. And losing that person is the sort of thing that's like losing the poster child for your organization. It really deflates a lot of the rank and file, and it results in the nastiness that Zane feels for her. So, rather than just taking the stats straight out of the book moving forward, I am working up a character sheet for Cook that will be posted to the website as soon as I can get it done, and Gabe gets the time to put it up there. Hopefully that'll be by the end of the weekend, but if not, it will be at some point during the week. It's not a big deal vis-a-vis this week's build, since Cook's not a part of it from a combat stance, but she will come back into play from a combat position in the future, so we need to get her character solidified as soon as possible. And when I get all of that done, I've got a theory about Cook that expands on what I've said here, but I think I'll drop that on the YouTube channel since I've spent way more time on the subject here than I'd planned on when I started. So just make sure that you're subscribed to the YouTube channel so you get the notification when it drops. Another thing I noticed while editing is that I'd originally said there were five members of Cook's team, but there were also points where only four were referred to. That is a continuity error on my point. Go with whatever number works for you. It's not really important for the story overall, which is probably why I didn't keep as close a track of it as I usually would. All right, last one, then we build. I've gotten a couple of messages asking about the source of the notes the group used to find the Brotherhood team in the first place. Some of our listeners have been wondering if I'd forgotten about it while working on everything we've done since. Truth be told, I kind of had sort of forgotten about it, but I've thought it through and found what I believe to be a logical way to address it in the build at some point. So, thank you for reminding me, and your patience and assistance will be rewarded. Now, we're almost 1,100 words into the show this week, and we're finally getting into the build stuff. You know the drill. First we recap, then we build new. So, let's recap last week's build. We began with the group, including the Brotherhood of Steel, standing in the old post office building with nothing but a note in their hands, and while they knew where they needed to go, they certainly weren't going to head out without as much info as they could possibly get their hands on. Mackenzie Cook was first on the list, and that caused a bit of a stir, as Paladin Zane recognized her as a former Paladin of the Brotherhood who'd been reported dead during a mission to Kansas City about a year prior. Over the course of the heated discussion, Cook noted that her team had abandoned her and left her for dead, but thanks to the help of a state patrolman, she'd managed to survive the day and chose to leave the Brotherhood due to the way her team had left her. Once that had been covered, she reported to the group that Parker Donahue is, as far as she's heard, the person who can get things others would say are impossible to find. She also warned the group that he's surrounded by fanatics who will do anything to protect him. The group then moved on to meet with Victor to see if he had any additional information. He reported that Donahue really isn't as good as he claims to be, or that the rumors make him out to be. He's basically a hustler who takes the money and runs, and relies on his fanatics to deal with those who disagree. Victor was also able to give them the location of Donahue's office within the dome, and it's the old Jessup Chemicals office that the group had already been to by this point in the game. So the group suited up and headed off. After being encountered by two dozen armed fanatics, and possibly assisted by a Gatling laser-toting Mackenzie Cook, the group entered the office, found Donahue hiding, and got the communication gear from him. He also gave them the name of his contact, Dawes, and a location Dawes likes to hide out in, which is a gentleman's establishment called the Red Light Club, and that's located on Cherokee Street. 
The group either let him live or they didn't, and we wrapped right after that. Now, before we do anything else, I think it's a good time to level up the characters, and you know the drill by now. One point of health, one skill point, and one perk. This would also be a decent point for the group to spend any caps they might have, though they haven't picked up any in a bit, and there weren't any in Donahue's office. Okay, I think we've covered all the background. Let's get the build started. As we begin, the group is standing in Donahue's office, having decided either to let him live or kill him. They've got the communications gear for the Brotherhood of Steel in hand, and they've got the name of the man who gave it to Donahue in the first place. That means they've got two things they need to do. Get the communication gear set up, find Dawes and figure out who jumped the Brotherhood when they came to town. We're going to build both of these out this week, but we'll go in order, so we'll start with the communication gear. Zane will want to have Scribe Cullen look over the gear to make sure it's functional, but she'll also need the transmitter to be placed in as high a spot as possible in order to facilitate the broadcast of her message to the farthest range possible. And neither of those things can be accomplished in this office. So she'll suggest they all get out of here and find a safe place to check out the gear. By now, they've been meeting at the shack in the past for the most part, unless your group has been letting them stay at their base of operations. Either way, they'll head there for Cullen to check the gear over. She'll meticulously work her way through each of the components of the gear, ensuring that all of the parts are there and that they're all in working order. The gear runs on a fusion core, and that's the only thing that seems to be missing, but Zane will sacrifice the core from her power armor for the cause, noting that she'll figure out a way to get another one. So with the knowledge that the gear is in working order, the next step is to get the transmitter dish attached to as high a spot as possible and to point it to the east. That's where the group has some thinking to do, and there's a bit more information they're going to need to help them in making that decision. The transmitter dish with its micro receiver has a built-in core that recharges itself with a small solar panel. So it doesn't have to be plugged into anything or have a core pulled out to be changed. That means it can be set up literally anywhere you'd like, but there's a catch. The transmission gear for that system, which is the box and microphone the team uses, can only broadcast out to about a mile before the signal begins to degrade. So that means wherever the group sets the dish, they need to make sure they've got a secure place to set up the rest of the gear within a one mile radius if they want this signal to be good. And obviously, the closer the two sets of gear are, the better the signal will be. That leaves the group with a lot of thinking to do, but we can make this pretty simple. The two most secure areas that the group could be with the broadcast gear would be either their base of operations or any Victor-controlled property within Diamond Pass. The shack he's let him use would be ideal, but his office or a small closet or other space inside the restaurant would work as well. That means we need to figure out where the highest point within about a mile radius of both of those would be. The most obvious one is going to be the hardest one to put the gear on, and that's the Gateway Arch. At its tallest point, it's 630 feet tall. And in this game, that's the tallest standing space in the downtown area. The next tallest would be the dome, but its tallest point is a tad over 200 feet. Finally, there's Diamond Pass itself, but since the old field level is actually below street level, the tippy top of the stadium only comes in at about 130 feet. So it comes down to how many chances the group's willing to take to get that dish set up. Obviously, the shorter the structure, the easier it's going to be, but Diamond Pass would be even easier to reach the very top because on the highest wall, it'd only be about a 20-foot climb, 
since they'd be on concrete decking on that level and would only have to climb that section of wall. Granted, they'd need to make some rolls to keep themselves up there safely, as well to make sure the dish is secured, but those rolls would be a lot less difficult. Those rolls are strength plus agility for the climb, difficulty two, and agility plus luck, difficulty two for stabilizing themselves on the ledge. To make sure the dish is secured, it's intelligence plus science difficulty three. Once that's done, have them make another roll to climb down, same difficulty, and we'll cover what's next after we work out the other two possibilities. The dome is going to be trickier. It's going to require scaling the outer wall, then carefully making their way up the dome to its apex. So the rolls are going to be a little bit more difficult. Up the strength and agility to a three and the agility and luck to a three. The stabilizing roll is the same since there's about the same amount of space to work with. The arch. That's going to be a tough one. Even though it's technically the best choice insofar as broadcast range, getting up there is going to be one heck of a ride. Now, it's not as bad in the game as it would be in the real world, as I noted in one of the very first episodes of the season that reinforcements were added to the arch that give it an almost Eiffel Tower look, but it's still over 600 feet up, so there's some work to be done here. Three strength plus agility checks, difficulty four. The agility plus luck check is also a difficulty four, and that's because they don't have a lot of space to work with and get the dish in place. Finally, the intelligence plus science check is a four difficulty, and that's because of all the other transmission gear up here. Then they have to make the three rolls to get back down. Now, I'm sure you're asking what happens if they fail a climb, stabilization, or climb down roll. If it's a diamond pass, not much. We'll be nice and say they fall 20 feet down and land on the deck. Roll a couple of dice for damage, but unless it has an effect, it won't do much more than bruise them. If there is an effect, you decide what you'd like to do with them. The dome is a bit trickier. A fall there is going to do some serious damage. Roll six dice and that's going to be some internal bleeding. Any effects are broken bones and they're going to be pretty messed up. If they fall off the arch, they're dead. It's plain and simple. But they're not going to do that because they're going to come up with brilliant plans to secure themselves and make sure they can do this safely. What those plans are, are up to you and your group, so we won't try to cover all the possibilities here. Once the dish is up, the gear can be switched on, and Zane will handle sending a transmission. Attention Pugnus, this is Paladin Zane. My team is secured within the city of St. Louis and has begun its mission. We will provide more information as we gather it. Zane, out. And for those who don't know Latin, or don't feel like popping it into a Latin-to-English translator, Pugnus means fist. <laughs> yeah, that's going to come into play later on for sure. Scribe Cullen is basically going to be taken off the board at this point as her job will be to monitor the gear during wake hours as messages could be coming in at any time for any point reachable by the transmitter. She's also been instructed to repeat Zane's announcement once an hour until a response comes in from the pugness. Now, to be honest, I haven't decided how far the various positions of the dish would reach, and for this week that doesn't really matter, but I'll have worked it out by next week and I'll let you know. What I can say is that cloudy weather is typically better for this type of transmission, as clouds conduct radio waves better than clear skies. You wouldn't necessarily think that, but several technicians I worked with in my radio days said that, and they said it independent of each other, and I don't try to tell professionals how to do their jobs. Of course, there could be new info to the contrary on that, since it's been more than 20 years since the last time I worked at a radio station. But anyway, let's build out the other encounter for this week. 
So the group knows where they can find this Dawes fellow. The only thing they're not sure about is when he tends to be there. I know my group, and they're going to do a little recon to find this out for themselves. There are a number of ways this can be done, but the two I'm thinking of are either stake a couple of people out in the vicinity of the Red Light Club, or see if one of their sources, or benefactors like Victor, has that kind of information. For the record, Victor does know when Dawes is in the club, but that's because he's been looking into him for actions he's taken against one of the security members in the club who just happens to be, let's just say, a friend of a friend. He'll tell the group Dawes is typically in the club on Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and he tends to get there around midnight and stay until the sun comes up. Reports are that other than the one security member, he tends to behave himself, spends a lot of caps, and doesn't make a lot of noise. He's not going to share what the issue is that he's interested in Dawes for, but he will ask that the group bring Dawes to him when they're finished, as he has a few things he needs to discuss with him. If Zane's with the group when this goes down, she'll mention that she likes this man's style. Victor's only other request is that they do nothing inside the club. Victor has an arrangement with the club's owner, and he'd like to keep that arrangement in place. Since the group is known to do jobs for him, them busting the place up would blow back on him almost immediately, and he doesn't want or need that. If the group chooses to post up and check things out, they'll notice him enter the club around midnight on Friday night. We'll say it's Thursday when they decide they're going to go do this. If you're keeping some sort of calendar, go with whatever day you've got. At that point, it's their call to either enter or continue gathering intel. They'll figure out on their own that he's in there on those three nights and how long he stays. They'll also note that he always enters the club alone. And in case any of them wonder how they got the right guy, the scar they were told about is red and obvious, so they've definitely got their guy. He's around five and a half feet tall, comes in about 225 pounds, and always wears his black Garson tactical uniform with the blacked out patches on it. He also moves like he doesn't have a care in the world. He also puts his hat on when he enters the club. Oh, and I know I usually give big history lessons and or descriptions of the areas we're using, but I'm not going to do that here. That's mostly because I want you to lay this area out however you'd like. It's not an actual red light district in reality, but if that's the way you want to go with it for the game, do so. If you want it to be one club of this type amongst a bunch of regular bars, do that. The possibilities are endless. What I'm doing is having someone in a suit of T-51 power armor standing on one side of the door and a woman in a suit and tie on the other. She's speaking to people as they enter, and she seems to be turning away some, though there's no real rhyme or reason for her decisions. For those who might remember how Studio 54 worked back in the day, that's sort of the vibe here, only with an armored thug with a minigun to handle those who object too strongly. I'm almost 100% sure my group's not going to try to take Dawes inside the club. There's way too many people there, there will be security to deal with, and they don't like causing a scene unless they need to, so they'll wait for Dawes to come out, then get him. That is, to me, the most logical way to handle this. But if your group wants to handle it inside, you can by all means let them do so. However, I'm going to leave the build of that up to you. Flavor it however you want, put whatever kinds of muscle in there that you want, and let your imagination run wild. I'm going to build what happens if the group takes him after he comes out. First things first. The sun will be rising in the east as Dawes makes his way out. He'll have a smile on his face, and he'll be oblivious to anything around him. Exiting the club, he'll head west for a couple of blocks before turning north. 
It's obvious he's rather drunk and he's still not paying attention to anything. So let me lay it out how I think my group will do it and modify it as you need to for your group when they do it. My group will spread itself out to try to cover Dawes from every possible angle, behind him, either side of him. Heck, somebody will probably try to work their way around to wind up in front of him. The one thing they'll be looking for is an alleyway to pull him into, and if it's a dead-end alley, that's so much better. We're going to make it easy for our groups, since about another block down the road, Dawes turns into an alley, and as the group catches up, they realize that not only is this a dead-end alleyway, but Dawes is taking a leak on one of the walls. This makes for the perfect ambush opportunity and allow your group to handle this as you will. Just remember that Dawes is definitely drunk, so he'll be slurring his words, even if they put guns in his face. This is what he's going to tell them, and they don't even have to roll for it if they offer him caps or shove guns in his face. He doesn't know about any Brotherhood of Steel people being jumped. He was just given some communication gear and told it came from the Brotherhood. He was told to do whatever he wanted with it, so he took it to Donahue and sold it for 500 caps and a half a dozen doses of jet. Nobody at Garson trusts him with anything big. And that should be obvious at this point. And that's it. It's a dead end. Dawes will pass out after having given that information, and it'll be real obvious he doesn't have anything of note to give them. Again, they can handle him as they'd like and roll with the punches on this one, though they should be taking him to Victor. This puts the group at another dead end in their search, but this isn't the first time we've done this to them, and we've got something on the way that will help them break through the proverbial fog. But we're not going to get to that till next week. That's because my group finally gamed again last week, and we've got a game recap for you. However, since it's been so long since the last game, we really do need to recap what happened during that previous session. When my group last got together, they decided they wanted to head off to iRobotics to get their eyes on the people producing synths in the region. At least that's who they thought was handling it. They met the guards in full mobster gear, entered the office, and got a meeting with Mr. Norris. They were trying to get information on who was assembling synths, but before they could really get down to business, Scott offhandedly mentioned that the groups had some synth run-ins, and that changed Norris's tone. Jim shot him before he could call for security, but they came anyway. The group escaped, then circled back to iRobotics and noted that all of the computers were being removed from the building by Garson tactical members. They decided to follow and wound up in front of a rather palatial estate in Maplewood. Thinking it was Longsworth's, they discussed destroying it and called Max to bring the mini-nuke and missile launcher. While they were waiting for him, they were noticed by the city's security, who informed them that this was the home of Tucker Malloy, and that so long as they didn't commit a crime on the streets, they would be okay. They changed gears and inquired about the location of any synth production facility from the officer, and the officer told them about the plant in Brentwood. When Max arrived, they put their plan into action. Max was to stick around and watch the estate for anyone coming or going. The rest of the group took the explosives and headed to Brentwood. That went pretty much the way you'd think it would go. They used the nuke to blow up the factory, and they all just barely avoided the shockwave. And that was where we ended that session. Getting into this session, I do need to note up, up top, we're without Max for the foreseeable future. Tyler was out, and so was Gabe. I did have their character sheets, so I could and did play them as need be. We picked up right at the end of the previous session, with the group making their way back towards the east, staying clear of the blast zone while they did. The group was discussing what had happened, and Jim said, totally in character, that the situation had been solutioned. 
Needless to say, our group now has a new word for dealing with stuff. The session was paused for a moment as we were all curious as to exactly how much area would have been impacted by the size of the mini-nuke as well as the fusion cells that were in the factory. Aniston ran the number using what we refer to as Google Foo, and we ultimately determined that around five square blocks were affected by the blast. And for the record, he used a combination of Fallout fan sites and actual science sites to get that answer. And yes, we do this from time to time. We are those kinds of geeks. Getting back to the game, the group headed back to Tucker Malloy's house, but they decided that even though Max had been hiding and watching, they'd already stirred up enough trouble tonight with the factory and that heading back to their base would be the better idea. However, they decided to make a stop at Victor's to report what they'd done. I used this meeting to send the group to meet with his contact Chip, which in our build took place well before the Tucker Malloy meeting or the factory situation. He sold it to them with the possibility of feral ghouls and synths being part of the deal. However, it took references to Garson Tactical potentially being involved to really sell it to the group. They met with Chip and that went as we wrote it up. He told them about the church and Mr. Smiley, then sent them on their way. The group headed that way, but when they realized there wasn't any sort of security on the building, that it might be a bit more than they wanted to handle after everything they'd already been through. Overall, they decided that they'd come back during the day and see if things looked different. During the chip meeting, he had provided them with the location of the other synth factory we wrote up. So with the rest of the group requiring sleep, he decided to go scope out both the church and the factory, and he being Jim, pronouns pal, and returning to the base as the group got up from a night's sleep. He reported what he'd noticed during his trip, which is that the factory has serious security on the perimeter, but an access through the sewer, and that the church doesn't seem to have much in the way of security. Before they could thoroughly process all of this, a messenger from Victor showed up and told them he wanted to see them. In that meeting, he let them know he'd located the main location for Garson Tactical and informed them that it was at the old Jefferson Barracks. Now, I need to pause the game recap for the moment to explain something. The group's got a lot of irons in the fire right now, and we've got so many stories so far out of order here that I decided to use GM Fiat to solve a few of them. And I tell you that so that the next part of the recap has context. So let's unpause. Victor asks the group for a favor and provides them with a few toys to deal with it. He provides a case with six mini-nukes in it and tells them that so long as they drop one on Tucker Malloy's house, they can do whatever they want with the other five. The group agrees to do this, and they left the office to game plan. Now, they were having issues deciding how they wanted to handle the church, since I'm pretty sure they were thinking they were too hot around the area. So I used this moment to bring Mackenzie Cook into the game. She shared info about the factory with the group, and the group asked if she'd check out the church for them. She agreed, and the group went on a bombing fest. They started with Garson Tactical, and they made it a point to survey the area. The total number of synths, humans, protectrons, and the like made it clear to them that a mini-nuke would be necessary, and since they'd brought two with them, they had a plan. The initial plan was to drop it near the riverbank, with the thought being it might deal with all the baddies while leaving the power armor intact. However, as they thought further about it, rather than maybe having to drop two nukes, they decided to just drop one in the center of the encampment and take their chances with everything blowing up. Which, since there were fusion cells in the bunkers for the power armor, is exactly what happened. 
Aniston attempted to argue before they did it that the Brotherhood of Steel would want the technical documents and power armor, but the rest of the group decided they needed to take Garson out and everything else was secondary. They did it the same way they did it at the factory, then they hauled it back to the base. From there, they decided to hit the other two targets on their list. The group members present would hit the factory, while the three who weren't present for the game would hit Malloy's house. They managed to coordinate it, and both went up in flames and booms. As Scott pointed out, out of the five most recent nuclear explosions in the metropolitan St. Louis area, the group is responsible for four of them, and they still have two mini-nukes left to play with. It did occur to them finally that they needed to check in with Mackenzie Cook, and when they approached her office, they noticed the dog laying out front looking rough. When they got inside, they noticed that Cook was worse for wear as well. They apologized profusely as she laid out what happened, and it went exactly as we wrote it, and she provided them with the holotape she'd gotten from the real and very dead Chip. After making their apologies again, they returned to Victor and let him in on everything they'd found out, including the information that Cook had provided about Longsworth's Clayton deal the following night. While the group is pretty sure Longsworth's not going to show for it, they agreed that they're going to be there anyway. And the group did inquire as to whether Victor could find the group a suit of power armor, and Victor agreed to try, though it will cost the group a couple of jobs as payment. And that was where we ended the session. Now, before we wrap the recap, I feel the need to explain something. And that's why I'm doing things so much different than the way we wrote them. As I said earlier, some of it is to try to get the group back on track with the order of what we've written. But the other reason has to do with the rule of cool. For the most part, combat slogs suck. Let's be real about it. And my group has gotten a serious kick out of dealing with issues with high-grade explosives. So, I can address two situations with one solution, and that's what I've done. And maybe that's the wrong way to handle it. But my group's happy about it, so for me, it's all good. And that's it for this week. Next week, the group will get some information that will break the stalemate and get them rolling closer to figuring out who was behind the attack on the Brotherhood of Steel. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we deep-dive the Japanese role-playing game, Alshard, and we also take a look at the game system it's built on, the standard RPG system. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out the entire line of products from Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We are all over social media, so check out the info box for today's show or our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we break the stalemate in the group's efforts to figure out who's bold enough to take on the Brotherhood of Steel. But that's next week, though. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.